Hi, everyone. This is Working Title, the podcast where we four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers watch and review IMDb's top 250 English-language movies as of November 2019 from bottom to top. So, watch along with us, and... Ask not what you can do for movies, but what movies can do for you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number one of Working Title. So here in the studio reviewing the movies with me, my name's Jack. I'm one of your reviewers. My qualifications are a ordained ministry of Judaism on the internet. June, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, so I, I, I studied video game design in college, but my degree technically says film and media arts. Therefore, highly qualified to be discussing and reviewing cinema. And uh, I would just like to add to the, of the, from the list of 250 movies, those are the English language movies only. Right, we will not be discussing uh, Bollywood movies, foreign films, maybe some foreign films, I don't know, as long as... I think there's foreign films. I opt out of this podcast. We're not doing Bollywood. I, that's why I'm here. Oh, well, who, uh, the man you just heard opt out, that's Mike. Do you want to tell us about yourself before you go? So, I, uh, I have zero qualifications. However, I have proclaimed myself as uh, the curator of movies of IMBD 250 movie list. Uh, so, I'm essentially going to be in charge of majority of the uh, breakdown of what we're doing here. Shane, do you want to tell us about yourself? Hello, my name is Shane. I uh, identify as a movie critic, and uh, I have a, a degree in political science. So I think out of the bunch, I'm probably the most qualified to do this. Shane also has his own IMDb profile. I also am an actor professionally, <laughs> uh, classically trained. Um, I am a method actor. What did you star in? Um, I, I starred in the movie Kids History. Um, you may have seen it. Kind of got a snub by the Academy, but we all know the game that they play. So, yeah, it's there's there's a lot of politics involved, and frankly, you were robbed. Uh, Wishbone did not deserve that Oscar. Tell you what, though, he made tens of dollars. Yeah, some say dozens. I would like to make a correction for tax purposes. I made zero dollars <laughs> on uh, that that film. It was completely charitable. If we want to talk Hollywood accounting, we can. Uh, we'll have plenty of time for that, but. Our movie today is from 1956 called The Killing, starring, and you may recognize these names, Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray, Vince Edwards, and many more, directed by a guy who uh, is kind of a one-and-done, uh, one-hit wonder director named Stanley Kubrick. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, probably not, pretty niche. Pretty short movie, 85 minutes, not too hard to watch. Let's, uh, let's talk about it. Uh, before we dive into our plethora of opinions about the movie. Mike, do you want to kind of walk us through what happens in this movie, what it's about? So this is, as you were saying, it's a 1956 movie about a heist that takes place on a horse racetrack. It's a little ambiguous at the beginning, doesn't really go into explain exactly what's happening, but it definitely sets the scene of a mobster-type uh, relationship crew that uh, comes up with a plan to steal a bunch of money. It's like a million dollars. It's a lot of money for the time, especially for the 1950s. So the movie we watch is uh, their breakdown of their plan and the things that go wrong with it, the drama that happens from it, and the inevitable ending, which was a little bit of a surprise for me. I did not expect it to happen the way it did. 
Um, so it was it was interesting to watch the uh, this type of movie, especially from the fifties. Very, I would say, unique for the era, or, or I guess uh, definitely was a more of a uh, groundbreaking kind of a movie for the time. There weren't a lot of those kind of breakdown these different scenes and plots and stories all lining up and coordinating with each other. Yeah, it definitely has that feel of a movie. You know, if you you look at, you know, the pictures of like the evolution of man from like caveman into, you know, 2017 asshole. It definitely looks like a few steps down the line from maybe like Ocean's Eleven or it, it does look like the ancestor of, of movies we know today. Definitely. It definitely set the grounds for that type of storytelling. Yeah, so um, with the, the summary of the plot, June, do you want to get us started here? Tell us what you thought about this movie. Uh, so overall, uh, it was better than uh, my expectation, which was zero. Uh, so <laughs> starting out pretty pretty high here. Um, yeah, you do have to kind of make allowances for those unknown directors. Like You have to set the bar low. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess going into... Uh, kind of the beginning of the movie we we see a guy that he's like i don't know he's really weak i guess you can tell right off the bat truthfully i don't even know what his role was in the heist except for opening a door uh which kind of feeds into his character i guess and just to clarify this is the um this is like the cashier at the racetrack he's kind of yeah, a he, he takes the bets kind of a kind of a softy i'm trying to remember what his name is here is george i think yeah, it was George. George, yeah, played by Elisha Cook Jr. Oh, that of course. Yeah, famous guy. Mr. Forgettable. We can't even remember his name. He wasn't that crucial to the story. But he does have an IMDb like myself. Actually, yeah, <laughs> looking at his IMDb, he was in Magnum P.I. as a character named Francis the Ice Pick Hofstetler. So apparently he can play non-flimsy characters, but continue, June. Yeah, so I guess he's uh he's married to uh Sherry, who mm-hmm. like is a total bitch. Sherry. Oh, oh Sherry. yeah, oh, she's Sherry. she's playing the hell out of him. As a as the great warrior poet uh, Kanye West once said, "I ain't saying she's a gold digger," but that would imply that there's money to dig for. Well, she she catches wind of it. Mm. That's what kind of kicks off the whole plot is uh, that argument or whatever with his wife. Uh, kind of introduces the the main premise, which is the uh, the robbery. Um, any other notes on the interaction with Sh- George and Sherry? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to just introduce it. There are two types of women in this movie. And by that, I mean there's literally two women. Um, they are either trying to take all your money and kill you, or they are weak people who think they're too dumb to find anyone else. Uh, which is the good girl, I guess. <laughs> Very strong female character. Not exactly the pinnacle of uh, feminine representation. I think that's that's safe to say. Uh, <laughs> which for a 56 film is surprising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? What, uh, what was the name of the uh, of uh, what was Johnny's girlfriend there? It's Faye. Yeah, so there were two couples, George and Sherry. Uh, Sherry was, you know, of course, playing George and had a, a guy on the side. And then uh, Johnny and Faye. And apparently Faye had been waiting for Johnny while he was in prison. About Faye, um, what struck me as, as very surprising was 
the director decided it would be good for her to say she's not only dumb, but <laughs> ugly. She is smoking, smoking hot. I mean, unbelievable that she would even say something like that. Yeah, that could be a line verbatim. Yeah, she is. Um, yeah, it was not quite the era of strong female characters, was it? I mean, I feel like Sherry kind of held her own. Yeah, she did. She did. Um, the, uh, it kind of reminds me of like reading old Hemingway books where it's like, I've, met, I've known you for one day. I'm in love and I will die for you. Let's go into a little bit about that. Let's talk about Sherry and George. I, I, I think, honestly, they truly are uh, the, main, the main pushers of the story in this, in, this, in this movie. They definitely, you know, Sterling was, he was the main character. But I think George really set the grounds for why the movie played out the way it did. He was so insecure that not only did he not trust his own wife, he also didn't trust the partnership he had with these people in crime and ended up causing, I think, the ending to play out the way it did. And Sherry definitely had a hand in all of that. So really important characters. Sherry was cheating on him. George was a pussy. And together they managed to screw over this really well-thought-out plan by Sterling. Uh, yeah, they were definitely the wrench in the works there. Like everything would have gone according to plan, but then it wouldn't have been a good movie, you know, if everything went according to plan and they just got all the money and left. That's what makes a good movie. You got to remember those characters. So, getting back into the the plot itself, so very um, oceans slash Italian job esque in the sense that Johnny assembles a crack team of. You know, however many people that all have their own little piece of the plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there was like a corrupt cop, um, the the teller, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. He had like a a crack shot sniper guy. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and some weird Russian wrestler dude. <laughs> so, yeah. So I I like kind of a. Kind of a, a, I don't know. It's stuff we've seen before or later, depending on how you look at it. It's Time, stuff we, am I we right? would see, yeah, in the future um, <laughs> as part of heist movies. Yeah, it definitely took its cues from Ocean's Eleven for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty pretty clear copycat. A shameless ripoff of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely kind of the proto heist movie. Uh, there's a beautiful scene where they're drawing out a map of the heist, and uh, Johnny's drawing it on—I uh, don't know, like a piece of paper. Did you guys get a good look at that drawing? I did not. The, the squiggles. It, it looked like a three-year-old drew it. Like, there's no way that was actually able to make any kind of coherent plan. <laughs> He's like, "This is where the taco stand is," and I'm like, "There was no taco stand ever shown." All right. <laughs> I, I want to say, too, there are some definite spatial discrepancies that kind of made raise some questions in my mind. The parking <laughs> lot right at the corner of the track that he shot from, that looked like it was about 10 feet from the track. That whole scene, that whole scene had so many problems. <laughs> there, was a, there was a big discussion of, uh, what's his name? Nikki was the guy who uh, they brought in to be a sniper, right? Um, he, uh, he's the one who's supposed to... The plan is, you know, they're going to shoot the horse that causes chaos and commotion they're shooting the winner he's a crack shop he makes a uh johnny makes a big deal out of how he needs like a telescopic sight but you know this guy's <laughs> a great shot and he shoots him from about 20 feet away and actually waits for them to run past and shoots him from behind i i didn't quite get that 
Um, and somehow he was supposed to escape unnoticed after shooting him in broad daylight. What chaos ensued after that? I think that our, our, our hairy Russian bear <laughs> caused more chaos than, than the shooter did. Which I don't understand, because that guy, I, really, we couldn't get any choreographer in there? I mean... <laughs> So uh, hold on, let's let's finish up with the the the, the sniper guy. Yeah, let's so, let's talk about that for a sec. He uh, skip on that. Yeah. So yeah, so he shoots the horse. I guess it, the point of it was as a distraction. Yes. But then they just finished the race anyway, like nothing happened, right? <laughs> yeah. So no commotion was caused. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he may as well have just driven his car onto the track. <laughs> It would have worked better. He would have got yeah. away. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then, so he died because he shot the horse, tried to escape, but the horseshoe that the guy, the the parking lot policeman had thrown on the ground punctured his tire with, with the lucky horseshoe that he had. He died because he was a racist. That is why he died. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. He was doing well until he dropped the N-word, and then it was like, well, I guess you're dead. I mean, there was a little bit of, like, dichotomy there, though, right? Because I think, I, I mean, I don't know, like, how good of a person you can be being hired to, you know, kill things. For um, $2,500. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so he was, he was, I think, technically, like, a decent human. I think he, like, dropped the whole, like, racism shtick to, like, get the guy, uh, the to guard, leave. to yeah. leave. Right, right. You know, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know. I think, I think there's more to that character. Unfortunately, it was a complete waste and uh, unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, he got about six lines, so it's not like we were really probing the depths of his inner soul. <laughs> I have a question. I'm not a doctor, but if you tell somebody you're paraplegic and you're driving a car, doesn't that seem a little suspicious? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure like the the hand operated accessibility cars were not invented in 1956. <laughs> For, for our listeners who haven't watched this movie, uh, what happens is he drives up to an empty parking lot to set up to take a position to sniper a horse in order to cause a disturbance on the racetrack, giving them time to steal the money. Uh, during this interaction with a security guard, he claims to be a veteran who is a paraplegic and wants to pull into the parking lot in order to watch the race. However, he's driving a car, which I assume has a collection of shifter, so very odd that he claims to be a paraplegic, and the guy buys it and lets him in. <laughs> yeah, so I also want to take a moment to say uh, he was offered five thousand dollars to uh, shoot this horse, if I'm remembering right. And uh, yeah, twenty five hundred up front, twenty five hundred afterwards. Uh, in nineteen fifty six dollars, in today dollars, that would be forty six thousand eight hundred. <laughs> That's a substantial amount. <laughs> yeah, I want to say I feel like. Well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe maybe killing a horse in the middle of a race with a jockey riding on him was a, a different crime in 1956. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like it would take a little more money to entice me to commit that kind Attempted of crime. Attempted murder for $50,000. <laughs> right? He laid it out pretty well. When he's explaining the job, I think, he, I, I don't, not verbatim, but I'm pretty sure he describes the, uh, he doesn't even know if it's a misdemeanor. You might not even get in trouble for it. <laughs> That's right. For shooting a horse in a crowd of people. <laughs> yeah. He, what, I think what he says is like, well, maybe they'll get you for shooting a horse out of season. I, th <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that there's a jockey on top of that horse. I mean, the, the 50, yeah. 
<laughs> God, I don't even know. You got to say you're going to prison. This is a, a frontier of law that hasn't been explored yet, but horse law. We've had a lot of chance. Uh, June had a chance to bring something up. Mike's kind of talked about a couple of things. Shane, anything you wanted to cover uh, here about this movie? Oh, God. Where do uh, I begin? It sounds like yes. Well, like I'll just bring up kind of my last point here before we, we just let this really go. Um, what I noticed is like the narrator in this movie is super specific about every minute, what the actor is drinking, like get leaves no room for the imagination but then the characters give dialogue and you're so confused as to what the hell they're saying like maurice will be like oh i'm gonna go get in a fight now and that's all he had to say but instead he goes i'm about to embark on an adventure of life and death there's love there's everything and i'm like what how can the narrator one second be like maurice left the bar in 1957 he had to be there in 16 minutes but then but then the character's like, remember that time on, on this island? And no one was talking about an island. Like, you're just so confused with the dialogue. Well, Shane, I think what you're missing is these characters have budgeted time to monologue. They've tracked this out, right? <laughs> we know from the narrator, they know how long it takes to drive to the track. But they've included a monologue in that. When they time themselves, they stop by the cashier at the chess club. <laughs> And they monologue for 10 minutes, and then it takes them six minutes to drive. So they have to monologue, or else the schedule's off. Oh my god, this script makes so much sense to me now. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the real key here. So, Mike, I know you have some reservations about narrators in movies, but, like, Shane is right. You have to... You got to do some beautiful mind shit on the window to figure out like what he's trying to say. What you got? I, mean, I had I had yarn on my wall. Like, <laughs> what what do I give a shit if he had to leave at like ten forty seven on the dot? Like, he he got to the track. You guys had your Excel sheets out, right? I still maintain that the times don't match up. The one guy left had like six minutes to get to the track, and everywhere else he had padded like twenty minutes. And I was like, what? What? Exactly six minutes? I can't get anywhere. It's, it takes me six minutes to get to the car and start it and move it. And Jimmy's going to go to the motel, get his gun from the flower case to the guitar case, and then <laughs> get in his car, start it. I assume it has a choke and a carburetor. So, like, what we're saying is that this was the Rube Goldberg of, of heists. <laughs> they were the, the narrator was so dire about it at times too. When the policeman shows up, I remember the line was like, "He could be one or two minutes early. That was acceptable, but ten seconds late would be deadly." Totally, <laughs> you left that woman just high and dry in the middle of the road. Like, oh, what yeah. was going on with her? She she needed some help, and he's just oh, the, <laughs> on the point of this being so specific. Um, he planned this thing down to the minute, but he can't choose the right briefcase size. Right. And he doesn't know that you can't take oversized carry-on. Like, yeah, that's rule number one of flying. Oh, well, well, let's let's hold off on that ending real quick here. Let's let's uh, put a hiatus on that. But I just got to say, like, if we're talking about situations, let's explain a little bit. So this guy has this gun that he holds in a in a flower box, and he's passed it around. He's a shotgun that he bought from uh, our sniper who ended up having an ill-fated death. Uh, but there's many situations where he's taking this gun around and he's hiding it in a flower box and then in an apartment and then like in a, a like a violin case for no reason absolutely zero reason <laughs> to be able to move it and then get it later it, it's ridiculous 
Which is <laughs> which is funny because that was Johnny's gun, right? That he holds up the the yeah. cashiers with. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, our sniper just like drives up to the fence, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And like something tells me, 1956, they didn't have X-rays and and you know metal detectors at their horse tracks. Yeah, you didn't have to have like a clear plastic bag to get through security to watch the ponies. <laughs> it's true. He could. He probably would have been better off just hiding it in his trench coat instead of putting it in a guitar case and taking. Yeah. It. I think a man with a guitar at a horse track is more conspicuous than a man <laughs> in a trench coat. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Right. With a guitar. A paraplegic driving a car. A paraplegic, nonetheless, <laughs> playing the guitar. Yeah, so let's walk through that that plan real quick of how the gun gets into the building. So he buys the gun, puts it in a violin case, puts the violin case in a hotel, leaves, intends to come back later, comes back with a flower box, puts the gun in a flower box, gives it to another guy to put in his locker while he goes in. Now, he gets uh, George to let him in, I don't know why George couldn't have put it in his locker. They involved a whole other guy for no reason. Because um, <laughs> George used the same locker room. He goes in, opens the locker, grabs the gun, puts the flower case back in for some reason. Because, like, people are going to check it, I guess. I don't, I don't fucking know. And then, like, just disposes of it by putting it in the money bag. So I don't know why, like, he could have just put it in the guitar case. There's, like, four different crazy points of failure along the way. <laughs> or just brought it in his jacket and walked in the door with it. So there's a couple there's a couple other issues involving involving guns in this, right? So George, the the weak character from the beginning, he has a gun. Right? He has his little like Mauser pistol in his lunchbox. He didn't he didn't do three case switches, you know? He Yeah, he, he just got to the yeah. track too. <laughs> he just had it. Yeah. Oh my god, we just cut out 30 minutes of this film. <laughs> cut out one guy out of that payoff. He could have just walked in and taken the money. And then so Johnny, he comes in with this like sawed-off foregrip shotgun thing. Like <laughs> what what difference would that have made if he just put a pistol in his pocket? Yeah. <laughs> right? What? Yeah. Oh, you've cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Ocean's Eleven if they just had a key to the vault. Well, boys, we need, we need to go rob a horse track. <laughs> this goes into what you were saying. Like You said I have reservations about a narrator in a film. I don't have reservations. I have a distinct dis- dislike for narration. <laughs> oh, here in we film. go. Yeah, so this is going to be my one point of actual uh, legitimate hatred for film with narration that I'm going to say about any movies. It is bad writing if you have to require a narrator to explain to the audience what is happening. It's terrible that I can't watch a film and just by their their conversations and their and their shots and the rhetoric that's going on in the film, I should be able to tell what's happening and not be confused. If you need a narrator to tell me what I need to watch and understand, you wrote a bad movie. <laughs> Professors are going to starve without this movie, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so that is that is my two cents and when it comes to narration it's unnecessary if you wrote a good movie i think uh i want to get back to the timetable real quick i think the only reason the timetable is really is because johnny was late and the narrator makes it really important that uh 
It showed it's me un- a scene where Johnny pulls a watch up and it says 10.05. And he says, shit, I was supposed to be there at 10. Perfect. No narration needed. We got the idea. He's late. I do feel like a quick, a few quick cuts of him just looking at the time would would show us that Johnny cares a lot about the time. Let's uh, let's take that note. We've all kind of had a chance to talk a little about kind of intro to the movie and how we how we get rolling into this plot. But let's talk about the end for a second here. Mike, you want to recap us through the end from the heist to where it all goes wrong? So um, I guess what we've covered so far in our discussion about the movie was uh, we got all the way to the robbery part where uh, Johnny. Uh, uses this shotgun to get into the the teller room where all the bets have been gathered up. Um, he forces the bookies and you know the the I guess the tellers to put all the money into a bag where he throws it out a window where his cop I guess hired um, compatriot his accomplice right his mm. accomplice grabs the money and uh, takes it away and puts it into the apartment where he had been storing his gun. At that point, everybody kind of spreads out and goes back to the meeting room at the apartment. This is where our Sherry and George storyline kind of arcs, where their betrayal, Sherry's especially, ends up bringing in this rando guy who tries to steal the money that they stole from the bookies and and the track. Um, Ends up causing a big shootout, which I'm sure we want to go into. Um, Really kind of a, a twist at that point. I didn't see that part coming. And Johnny ends up fleeing to the airport uh, with the money in order to escape where we have another kind of a, a plot twist at the very end there. Yeah. So uh, any, any thoughts on that folks? Yeah. I mean, George and, and Sherry are definitely like the drivers of this entire film. It kind of revolves around them. And really it's just, I think Kubrick was probably going through something at the time when he wrote this. Cause <laughs> according to him, just all women are just money grubbing and, and trying to like take you. And I, you know, I think there was a line literally where Sherry says, I'm sorry, I've been so mean. When we have money, it'll be different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Sherry is like just the most terrible person ever, I guess. That's just her character. Somebody somebody explain the Reservoir Dogs scene there at the end. Yeah, so, uh, okay, this is horrible to admit, but I'm sure we'll remediate this in the next five years of movie watching. But I haven't actually seen Reservoir Dogs. What? Essentially what happens is everybody shoots each other. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> Sherry and her uh, guy on the side come in trying to hold these guys up for the money, but arrive before the money actually shows up. And uh, they hold everyone up, but George was in another room and shoots the guy on the side somehow. And uh, actually, she doesn't even show up, does she? Uh, anyway, somehow the guy on the side shows up. George shoots him, and somehow the other guy shoots, and then everyone but George dies? Everybody. Everyone, yeah. George hit everyone in the room. Yeah, um, there's a lot of angles in there that don't make <laughs> sense. Like, the, the trigonometry is a little iffy for me, but... Uh, anything else we want to cover about this before we, we drive on to the finale? I think, uh, I think was it you, June, you were talking about a suitcase? Uh, no, that was, that was somebody else, but um, that, I think that was probably the, the biggest... Um, I, I, I don't know, I kind of saw that coming. Yeah. So... Mike is the plot guy. You want to tell us what happens with the... uh... Yeah, walk us through the very end, Mike. Sure. So the end of the movie, after we have this graphic shootout where essentially we've lost all the characters at this point, we have two left. And really one of them wasn't even in the movie the entire time except for the beginning. So we have Johnny and his girlfriend who are fleeing to the airport 
uh, with all of the money now, who he has switched over to a briefcase that he bought from a secondhand shop, which honestly is where the movie lost me. I mean, why did you do that? You have no reason to be this quick to run. But anyway, so he gets to the airport with this shoddy suitcase fleeing with his 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 girlfriend and he has a i guess a, a run-in with a clerk at the desk who won't let him check his or he won't let him carry on his bag he has to check it this has has all the money in it he doesn't want to obviously but he ends up agreeing for some reason and goes out to the flight line where they're standing in the line and a, a woman with a small dog <laughs> who she has no control over ends up turning over the the car that is driving his briefcase to the airplane and dumps a million dollars onto the flight line, which is then blown up into the air. Um, and we watch Johnny in shock walk away from the airport and eventually is pulled aside by some police officers. And he really just gives up and just, he doesn't care anymore. And, and just that's the end of the movie. I, I believe the, the finishing line in the movie, the last statement is what's the difference. Yeah. What's the difference. Oh, I mean, one of your, well, all of your buddies are dead. That's one thing. <laughs> I just want to say that my biggest downfall with this movie was the ending. It made no goddamn sense why he felt like he had to rush a briefcase. If he bought a piece of luggage that didn't close properly, go buy another one, man. If you have a million dollars, you can buy the best fucking luggage that you can buy and then get on another flight because he didn't make that one. He literally had the cash in hand. Surely. <laughs> Let's, uh, w- one thing to establish, too, is he bought these plane tickets in advance in case something went wrong. He, he booked uh, his carry or his check bags already, right? He, he already had plans to get on this flight, but somehow it didn't occur to him that he might need a bag to carry things on the plane with him. <laughs> and that it needs to be large enough to have $2 million in it. And it needs to lock shut. <laughs> he skimped on the suitcase. <laughs> right? Like, at least this wasn't narrated. They had a scene of him behind a bush stuffing loose bills into this bag. I don't know why he couldn't, like, compress the canvas bag and put the bag in the, in the suitcase, right? Like, he can obviously, like, take the gun and, like, disguise out of it, but... Oh, speaking of animals, too, back to Mike's thing. You can't get enough narrators in this. Even the parrot that lives... And um, was it Sherry's place? Oh, Sherry's. Sherry and George. Yeah. yeah. Even the parrot narrates for us exactly what's happening. Like, we didn't get that, that she betrayed him and everyone's dying. The parrot has to tell us. That was, a, uh, that was a beautiful scene, by the way. The fact that he returns and the whole movie was him being abused by Sherry and George being a, a, essentially just a, a bitch in this whole thing. And George kills Sherry with a gunshot and then dies on the floor right in front of her. Like, poetic justice, if I've ever seen it. What happened to George in the end? Did he just... He's dead. He bled out. He had shotgun shells in his face. He had the beans. He still drove home. So we've kind of covered the entirety of the movie here. Any any points we want to cover with the whole thing, the totality of this, uh, this work in mind? I really felt for Johnny. Because that woman's emotional support animal screwed him over. I, I do want to say, I feel like it kind of takes some guts to just, like, fuck the ending like that. I don't think you'd see that in a 2019 movie. Like, I feel like audiences need to have a happy payoff now. And Kubrick <laughs> was just able to, like, well, yeah, fuck it. No one gets any money. Everyone's dead. And, yeah. <laughs> um, Maurice, the chess master Russian MMA fighter. Yeah. Am I the only one that felt like 
all his exposition and introduction and everything was kind of useless. Was this actor like, do you have a deal to like get some role for his next film or something with Kubrick? Like, cause none of it paid off his chess mastering, his monologue at the cash register, all for him to just do some King Kong S choreography at a bar to make, like we could have just had him go, Hey, big guy, I need you to get in a fight. And he goes, duh. And then that's it. It's essentially what happened. He, he would have done it for free there. The, the reason they hired him was because of his body. Let's, let's be, let's be completely honest about this. It's because he's hairy and Russian and big. Yeah. yeah. That, that, uh, King Kong choreography. That's, that's true in more ways than one. <laughs> I, I expected a little better. I mean, not even like, legitimate punching he literally like jumps on the ground and everyone falls down yeah, that was a that was a interesting fight and yeah what a character i think i think that uh that fight was probably the most pivotal point so i i guess to set the scene that was the most important part of the plot surrounded by the most useless parts of the plot because <laughs> you have this one guy who is a a bartender at the track who does absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, then he puts you have, the gun in the, the locker, which we've established was totally unnecessary. You know, we could cut him out completely. And then you have the financier guy who was not supposed to be there, but then he shows up drunk and you're like, you're thinking, oh no, like this plan's going to go to shit now, but then it's never addressed again. Yeah. <laughs> he just walks away and like... Uh, Johnny gives him a dirty look, and then, like, that's it. That's it. I like to think that actually happened. Like, the actor just wandered onto stage <laughs> drunk, and Kubrick's like, fuck it. You know, just leave it. Because everyone's confused that he's there. And I like to think that actor just really got drunk in his trailer and wandered onto set. <laughs> Shane, we, we call that method acting. <laughs> but I want to pull this thread a little more. So we've got the bartender, who is useless. George, who opened a door, had nothing to do with it. Like, he could have just walked through that door. The The Russian guy fought the cops. He got all the cops out of the tower. Like, that was important. We have the, the shooter who shoots the horse, which we've, again, established. Didn't really matter. The horse, the race finished. He did sell Johnny the gun, though. That's true. Um, what did the cop do? Yeah, and then we have the cop. And the cop was important because he, he took the money and rolled with it. Yeah, because that was his getaway. Three to four splits of the money that were totally unnecessary. <laughs> Johnny could have walked away with like one and a half of that two million. And probably a better plan. Yeah, and he would have paid $2,500 to the Russian guy to start a fight than whatever the share to the policeman was. We would have had more time to buy a legitimate suitcase as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, toss in $500 in 1956 money, which I guess is like... 5000 or more for a suitcase still comes out ahead. <laughs> Jack, do you want to take us into the, the, the ending here? Yeah, let's, uh, let's uh, just talk really quick about how this movie did. So it cost $320,000 and apparently lost over 100000 And um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, so uh, apparently uh, some magazines thought it would make a killing, and it didn't. Ah, the killing. Oh, got him. So what um, you're saying is this whole movie was uh, very self-reflexive in the sense that Johnny lost all that money, and uh, so did the studio. And, yeah, and so did United Artists. 
what actually <laughs> happened in the making of this movie, they actually had a million dollars in a bag that they blew out on an airport <laughs> runway. <laughs> you know, Kubrick. On, on that note, a uh, couple other little fun facts. Turns out, we mentioned Reservoir Dogs earlier. Turns out Tarantino has listed this movie as a significant influence of the uh, film Reservoir Dogs. That makes, makes sense. sense. Interesting. And then also, Cola... Cola Quariani, the actor who played the uh, wrestler and chess player, was actually a professional wrestler and chess player. Oh, so that was just his demands to be in this movie. Because <laughs> the chess master thing, it made no sense. They could have just met anywhere. If he was a professional wrestler, why the hell did his scene look so doctored and fake? Well, somewhere out there in an alternate universe, we're doing a podcast reviewing professional wrestling from 1956 to now i think that'd be a much more interesting we should just start over we'll do a different podcast about early wrestling and our favorite wrestlers yeah the the top 250 uh wrestlers (laughs) english language wrestlers wrestlers. uh, we're specifically excluding luchadors that's just a whole whole different world so kind of kind of having covered you know maybe some fun facts that kind of thing we like to of the movies we've seen rank them this is kind of how we establish our ordering of the universe what's good what's bad we don't trust the plebs at imdb so um june of the movies we've seen where would you put this uh it's a tough one um yeah i think of the of the one movie we've seen i would i would still rate this number one okay that's bold but let's let's see what shane has to say about that you know I, I did a lot of, you know, soul searching on this one. And honestly, I'm going to have to put it at number one, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Number one. Yeah, that makes sense. Mike, what do you think? So I'm not going to, I'm going to break this down a little bit differently. Uh, this is, this is a six out of 10 movie. hundred uh, percent. In fact, my note. Make it up ratings now. Which... <laughs> Wait, so six out of 10, a hundred percent. So. 60% of the time, it's 100% of the time. It's at least six. It's at least number six. I don't even know what comes before it, but I know there's five better movies than this movie. <laughs> I see. Okay. So uh, remaining undecided, I'm going to have to say this is probably the worst movie we've watched. Um, oh, so you're putting it at the bottom of Lilith. Yeah, hmm. at the bottom. So at one. My so finishing one. comment at the end of my notes here, I wrote, good ending, he's an idiot. So that is my judgment <laughs> of this movie. Yeah, it's a finality. Um, now, having ranked it, it currently sits at spot number one. Would you recommend people watch this? Uh, Mike, what do you think? Would you recommend people watch it? Definitely sit down, watch this movie. It's a good movie. It was fun. At the end, I really kind of felt on the edge of my seat for a black and white 1956 movie. Go check it out. Great movie. Uh, Shane, what about you? You recommend watching it? Yeah, I mean, you, you should watch it. It's good. It's an hour 20, which is amazing. You could still have a day after you watch this movie. And, uh, you know, it all tidies up. Yeah. Three thumbs up. Uh, June, what's your verdict? Uh, yeah. So first of all, you, ha- you pretty much have to watch it to uh, understand our incessant ramblings. Um, <laughs> so watch it. Overall, yeah, you know, same thing. Black and white movie. Like, was not expecting a lot. I mean, there's some good you know, black and white, older movies out there, but I, I would honestly recommend the movie. 
Yeah, I think I would say the same. It's it does really feel like kind of a ancient ancestor of like Ocean's Eleven. Like you can definitely, it feels fun in a way that you wouldn't feel like Citizen Kane is fun. Ugh, God. <laughs> oh, uh, fuck. We have to watch that movie, don't we? Yeah, we we probably God, do. Damn it. <laughs> and uh, I I would say I think I think Mike's right. Like I was I was on the edge of my seat too. Like I wasn't expecting to be so engaged by this movie. And despite the flaws and like the the seams it shows with age, it's it's pretty good. I'd recommend it. I think a lot of the flaws, like we've discussed, were with the characters and their actions, not so much like the movie. You know. Yeah. Um, I also think you know it's definitely an artifact of its era, and things that seem tired and old now maybe weren't so tired and old then. We literally wouldn't have Ocean's Eleven without this movie. So. We literally wouldn't have Reservoir Dogs without this movie. We literally wouldn't have Tower Heist without this movie. <laughs> I would kill myself right now if Tower Heist never existed. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know that it didn't exist, but I would feel a hole in my soul. Well, I, I think you've heard it. It's uh, that's unanimous from us. We recommend this. June, what movie is up next for us? What, what's next week's movie? Uh, what is next week's movie? The Killing Two. <laughs> the Killinging. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so next week's movie is 1958's Touch of Evil. Ooh. Sticking with the oldies. Well, if you want to hear what we have to say about Touch of Evil, tune in next time. <laughs>